Well, great to be with you again, and I'm going to get right into it tonight because there's a lot of material, and uh, if you knew what time Malcolm told me to finish, you'd be walking out now. But uh, here, here we're going to do our best. As you know, I'm doing the... Uh, I'm not going to read the scriptures now because I've got a lot of verses on the screen, but I had Acts 2, 42 to 47, and Revelation 3... Uh, in mind, that behold, I stand at the door of Nark, you remember those scriptures, uh, as well as what's on the screen. You know I'm doing the uh, seven churches on Sunday nights, and we're going to whip through the four more this Sunday, try to do it more expeditiously than last week. But I wanted to make it very practical. I'm doing a practical approach to the seven churches, not a historical prophetic approach. Uh, but we've got to really think about... Uh, our church today as well, and what Jesus wants. So I, I'm really doing tonight as a kind of checkup for the church, uh, for you. And I can do this here. You know, there are some churches which are so discouraging and so dead and so out of it that I hardly like to talk about this because it just seems like I'm getting at them. But I think I really enjoy being here. I think you've got a lot going, and I, I just feel free to challenge you about what the church should be doing and check up the church with you tonight. So that's what we're going to do. Now, I really ought to get right into it, but I've been um, feeling that I should do a very, very quick review of the universal church because the body of Christ, the universal church, has characteristics that this local church should be reflecting. Now, this won't be new. This is not anything sophisticated, but it's a quick review of um, a brief reminder of the nature of the universal church. And I'm doing it because each of the marks that I'll just remind you of, so I will go quickly, uh, should be reflected in some way in the, in the local church. So let's review that. Remember, the universal church is all the people of God through the centuries, of course, every nationality, everyone who knows God through Christ. So we're talking big scale and you can't individualize. There's no one you'll recognize in that picture, but there's just a few members of the universal church, which is the body of Christ, and you're aware of that. Uh, and it has certain key marks, a lot, and I'm going to pick out four which should be reflected in the local church. Uh, let me first of all remind you, the universal church is universal. Uh, that means, of course, that... Um, well, Galatians 3, there's neither Greek nor Jew, slave or free, male or female, all one in Christ Jesus, interracial, uh, social barriers, all barriers removed. And that should be reflected in local church. United, so important. Remember what Jesus prayed, John 17, that they all who believe in my name would be one. And uh, this call in Ephesians 4 to keep the unity of the Spirit. Unity is so important for the Lord. Holy, because it reflects God's character. 1 Peter 1.15 Be holy, for I am holy. And of course, the great thing is eternal. Well, I told you, the local church may be one generation away from extinction, but the universal church is, well, the gates of hell, as Matthew 16 says, will not prevail against it. But some of those characters we need to think about in the local church, which certainly is and can be transient, and you'll see that thinking about where the seven churches in Revelation are today. 
The church has a big purpose. Sometimes we're too narrow in our thinking. Ephesians 3 is an important scripture because it says through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities and heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose accomplishing Christ. I want you to think back and realize the church is more than an earthly witness. The church is for God's wisdom to be manifest in heavenly realms. Staggering thought that heaven, the angels, rulers, authorities are absolutely staggered at the purpose of God which he accomplished, of course, in Christ and that's to establish the bride of Christ, the church. Very broad cosmic purpose, but hey, that should be reflected in the local church too. We're to be a cosmic witness to God's wisdom because we have a job to display God's glory. We do that more locally. You can't, well, the angels look down, of course, but there's a local sense in which we have to reflect the glory of God. So we can learn a lot from that. And remember, quickly let me remind you, there are many images of the body of Christ and universal church in Scripture. The three main ones are the three Bs, a body, a building, and a bride. And each one of these deserves a separate sermon, of course. But a church is like a body. And, and there are many lessons in that. But the body emphasizes, the body image I want to mention tonight emphasizes the supremacy and headship of Christ. And this is absolutely key. I talked about who's in charge. It's the Lord Jesus. Colossians 1.18 He's the head of the body. The head of the body. He's the beginning. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. Very important lesson from the body image. And of course, it affects us because from him, the head, the whole body, joined and held together, Ephesians 4.16, grows and builds itself in love as each does its work. And the importance of the body image is not only Christ the head, but we have a part to play. And one thing the body image helps us to recognize is, yes, the diversity, we're all different, the unity... We all have to work together. It's no good if one organ in my body goes off independently and, of course, interdependence. Every part of the body depends on every other part. Very important. And you can apply that yourself in a very easy way to the local church. So that's the first image, the body. Then the other one is the building. And again, the lesson's the same. Christ is described as the foundation of the church. Absolutely crucial. Christ, the foundation of the church because 1 Corinthians 3.11 no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ. Central. You know, it's so important as it's about the Lord Jesus. It's described not only as a foundation but a cornerstone. The whole thing held straight, held together because of Christ. Christ Jesus himself, Ephesians 2.20 the chief cornerstone. The lesson's the same. Again, we see the supremacy of Christ over the church. The cornerstone is essential if the true is, uh, church is to remain true, growing and united. Very simple lesson. You know, years ago, I was to go on sabbatical to Sweden. And, and our assembly was in really bad shape. I thought it would be closed down today. It's thriving, by the way. Uh, but I phoned my father, a godly man, and I said, I don't think I can go on this sabbatical. I've got a visiting professorship waiting, but 
the church, the assembly's in terrible shape and there's only three elders and one never speaks at the elders' meeting, the other doesn't stay on the topic and, and you know me. And my dad said, are you telling me this church depends on you? I said, I suppose I am. He said, go! It's the Lord's church. He can look after it. And I went. When I came back, it was in much better shape. A missionary came home on furlough, started in Iwana work and hey, we never looked back after I went. <laughs> but I'm saying, it is so tempting to forget he's the Lord of the church. And we Christians are part of that building. We're called living stones. Yes, the church is a single building, but it has many diverse stones. And we together make up the people of God. Ephesians 2.22 says, You are living stones being built together into a spiritual house. Very powerful imagery, wonderful imagery. And they're so varied. I saw this wall, I thought, isn't that wonderful? The different shapes, but they fit together. We're varied, we're interesting, and many different personalities, but that's what makes up what will be a harmonious building. Many stones joined together, making a harmonious single building. Very powerful image. And the last one, of course, is the bride. Wonderful key image. The church is like a bride. The New Testament makes it clear that the, the, the main function of the church uh, glorifying God is to be the bride of Christ. The great goal. God's a purpose for God and the great goal. Ephesians 5.27 is that he might present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or other blemish. What a goal for any bride to be without wrinkles and blemishes. I remember the way they worked on my daughter. She looked beautiful anyway to, to make sure she looked radiant on the day. And I thought, that was so important. But spiritually, how much more so? And the image of the bride. Oh, it's, it's just to remind us that what we're talking about is an intimate relationship between God and his people. That, that it involves faithfulness, loyalty, love, and joy. That, that's what marriage is about. It's about faithfulness, it's about loyalty, it's about love, but it's about joy. And, and that, that's why I love this image, because in the end, and I must stop this review, it's taking off the message, but it's important that the Bible's a love story. It's about Christ's love for the church. So that's the backdrop. Remind you, a quick review of the Bible teaching on the universal church. And the bottom line in all that is to him be glory in the church forever and ever. Amen. That's the ultimate bottom line. But we're a local church. We fit into all that. That's all wonderful. But what should the local church be doing? And of course, the big question is how, how well does he, does he do it? I was in Fort McMurray a few years ago doing some ministry in a small assembly. That's the big oil sands project Obama's messing up our pipeline. We were planning to bring you plenty of oil down here, but uh, that's where it's going to come from. And this is a huge, huge development. I was wondering how this, I, I was seeing machines like this that are taller than high rise. And I'm going, man, what's that supposed to be doing? I mean, it's big, but what's it supposed to be doing? Because that's a key question. I mean, the church is complex, it's big. What's it supposed to do? And, 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 and should it be innovative? I saw this chair, which is a, apparently a great innovation if you want to relax when you're using your computer. And I'm saying, does it help? I mean, it's, it's just a gimmick. I'm sure he knows this because we've got to ask these questions 
about our local church? What's it supposed to be doing? Is this innovation helpful? Uh, does it do it well? That's an important question. I thought this was an amazing picture. This is a five-ton, 50-foot long computer, one of the very early ones, as you can see from those guys' bell-bottom pants. This wasn't yesterday. But it took this computer took five seconds to multiply two simple numbers. Uh, not quite like this laptop I have in front of me. Uh, and and, it, and it, it's an equally important question. You see this stuff. What's it doing? Does the things that you put on it help? And, and how well does it do it? Those are the questions we need to ask. Now, I have a little handout. I mustn't forget to mention I'm leaving at the back, which is a checklist for evaluating the local church that you can go, and I'll be going through the headings of this in a few minutes, uh, to help us answer these questions. Uh, but as I do that, and I talk about the image of building and show you these big machines, I do want you to remember that the local church, which meets in this building, is not a building. And we're still talking about the people of God. Uh, so when you're talking about how well are we doing stuff, don't think I'm talking about building use or activities. I like this cartoon. I saw a couple of birds looking at this magnificent church and they said, well, it's quite a nest, but they only use it once a week. It is important. I love to see this building being used and, and I see people coming and going, living in the house and that's great. But, but it's, it's really not about how many activities and building use that I'm talking about as we see. As we will see, I hope. Now, I've been going through a lot of scriptures on this topic and I decided I'm going to boil down the uh, answer to the question to really three things. That the local church should be behaving like a healthy family. That it should be like the churches in the New Testament. And I'll talk about what that means, of course. And it should be doing what Christ wants it to do. That's why I'm doing the seven churches. Uh, we're going to uh, steal my own thunder and remind you of what they say about what Christ wants. But that's where we're going, and this little uh, handout, in case I run out of time, is raising those questions with a lot of scriptures on, because I can't give them all now. Does the church behave like a healthy family? Does the church show the marks of a New Testament church? How close is the church to doing what the Lord wants it to do? Those are the key questions. So we should be having like a family. Well, how is a local church like a healthy family? Uh, so some simple points. Each one of these is a talk in itself, so excuse me, rushing. But, you see, we need to know and interact with each other in a personal way. The universal church is spread over six continents. It's, it's 20 centuries. It can't function as a family. I mean, you, you never have a chance of knowing each other. Maybe that's why we need eternity. I don't know how I'm going to cope with all the people we're supposed to know, but a local church is in absolute contrast to that. It's here and now, and my view is it should be small enough for us to um, know and interact with each other. I was hearing about a church here in Florida where, you know, that's huge, mega church, and they have small groups and stuff, but there's just, I went once to check it out a few years ago, and there's just no way anyone could know anyone unless they were in one of these small groups. And but this is not my picture of how the church is in the, in the New Testament. 
because it, it's a very personal thing, you know. If you receive Christ as a Savior, Galatians 4, 5 says, you've received the full rights of being his child. So you're God's child. Uh, Christ is called the firstborn among many brothers. So you're in a family. If, you, if you're a Christian, you're part of the family of God. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, but we have to operate then like family members. Romans 8, I'm doing these scriptures real fast, but honestly, the Spirit itself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, for children, then we're heirs, co-heirs with Christ. These are fantastic verses, but the point I'm simply making tonight is we're children. We have God's Spirit in our hearts, so we call God, I mean, we call God without being irreverent, Daddy. Uh, and of course, the results of that, the practical results of being in a family and having a common father is that we live together as brothers and sisters. That we relate to each other in practical ways like siblings should. Now, I know my, I have a, two grandchildren, my sons, and they, those two kids fight like crazy, so it's a limited model. I went to supper with the, Dave Bosworth tonight, and I know it's uh, siblings interacting in a wonderful way, but it just made me think of this important truth that we live together like brothers and sisters. And Paul develops the theme of the church as a family or a household of God in several places. And it's very practical. For example, in 1 Timothy 5, he said, look, you've got to treat the older men in your congregation like a father, younger men like brothers. Older women, like mothers, younger women, you treat them like sisters in all purity. In other words, in the church, operate like a good family. So, so there, are, there are practical ways in which a local church demonstrates, hey, we're part of the same family, uh, and, and we should display family characteristics. And what are they? i got a huge list, fantastic list. I'm going to group them in twos or threes for the sake of time. Love, support, and acceptance. That's absolutely key. Love. John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, love one another. This is how people will know you, my disciples, if you love one another. And when the church behaves like a family of people who love each other, of course, unbelievers know that our message has reality. So love, support, you're doing James. I mean, you've, you've done this. Suppose a brother or sisters wear clothes and daily food. Hey, some brothers brought some tonight. They're not going to fit me, though. <laughs> He's a big guy. But that, that's exactly what, if, if you have some clothes, share them. It's not just saying, hey, I wish you well. Be warm and fed, but not helping them. You know what I'm saying. You've studied it. Let's do it. Love, support. Uh, our family privileges come with a responsibility to support each other and I know you do it very well here. That's a great thing to see. Acceptance. Let me remind you, in, in a family, I mean, you don't go to a family. You go to a church, maybe, a building. You don't go to a family. You're part of it. You're accepted for who you are. Um, so, in a way, you shouldn't talk about going to church. You should be going to share with your family because if you're a Christian, you're already part of the church. You see... N Church and family are, are really not events. I mean, the church has events. You have a worship service, you have fellowship lunch, you have small groups, maybe all kinds of things. But, but these are not what defines 
the reality of what it means to be church. What it means in a family belonging comes, well, it comes from who you are, not, not what you do. I mean, a lot of families have different members. I saw this cartoon of this oddball. <laughs> wears a special hat, but he's quite talented. But the family accepts all the very different members. Because our community is not built on the idea that we earn the right to belong. That's not the gospel. I've got a grandson who's away in California at the moment. He's doing a placement in Silicon Valley. And I see these pictures on CNN and I pray for him. But he's coming home for Easter. And we're looking forward to that. Now, I'm not going to say, hey, come over for the Easter dinner because you got such good grades in your placement. I'm so pleased with how you did in that, uh, that, that, that trip to Silicon Valley. I'd like you over for lunch. Now I say, come, you're my grandson. He's a son, he's a grandson. It's nothing to do with accomplishments. Uh, that's how it is. And you're received into the fellowship on the basis, not of what you can do, although I hope you do what you can, uh, and we can certainly use everybody who wants to get involved, but it's on the basis of the fact you have a common Heavenly Father who you are as a member of the family. You're accepted because you already are a brother or sister in Christ. So, this sounds great. Does this mean we're going to agree about everything? Of course not. This family, one's wanting Chinese, one's wanting Italian, one's wanting a, a Burger King. I'll agree on everything. We don't do that. You know that. I've traveled around. You'd be amazed at the churches that are falling apart over traditions and music. There's a challenge to it. I love organs. Our assembly's got rid of the organ. Oh, why did they get rid of the organ? I love it. And there are challenges to work out, like style of music. Uh, the guys are saying, let's use drums and guitars. Actually, we have a praise team on one Sunday and a more traditional on the other Sunday because what we've got to resist is those churches and some bigger assemblies up north are doing it where we have contemporary and traditional services, totally dividing the family. When we have a family get-together, they need granddad there and the grandchildren. They'll say, well, I'll have a dinner for granddad and, and the old aunts, and then we'll have another dinner for the kids. But we accommodate each other. I fool around with the kids, and they put up with my stories told over and over again because we're a family. So I... I can't sing some of these songs. But I see my grandson praising the Lord, singing his heart out. And I want to sing, How Great Thou Art, and When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. But hey, I'm not going to complain when I see my two grandchildren praising the Lord. But we don't agree on that stuff. But it's not a principle. It's a style thing. And I want to talk about that more. Uh, because, you see... When we love and support and accept each other like Henry, Henry <laughs> I'm going so fast, I'm talking about heavenly families, healthy families should, um, then we run into all kinds of discussions because in the assemblies, as in any church group, we have history and tradition. Nothing wrong with it. Very good. Paul said 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand fast, hold the traditions that you've been taught, whether by word, mouth, or letter. Traditions are important, and every local church should value its history. You heard a bit on Sunday about the history of this church. The brother that first founded things was here. Very important. Nothing wrong with tradition. Uh, but you must distinguish between tradition and biblical principle. 
And this happens. I see these fights. There's no principle at all. Uh, it's important, you see. We have our breaking of bread like most assemblies at 9.30 on Sunday morning. So very, very important. I mean, that's, that's a principle, the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, this don't remember. So, I mean, I have no idea when he was kneeling down like that. So I think they were more around a table like this. But he said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover day. Do this. So there's no doubt about the importance. This is not a tradition. This is an ordinance. This is a principle. Uh, but it goes along with a lot of traditions. I went to Sweden on this sabbatical, the one that my dad told me to go on. I go to this little assembly. And they were in a panic because it was meeting time and I got lost. And they were waiting for me. And I said, what, 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 why, what's up? We have to close the door when the hour comes. That was a today. You know, when the hour was come and when the hour was come, they'd close the door. And I wasn't in. And they were bent out of shape over that. Then I sat in the wrong seat because the men sit separate from the women. It's just a tradition. Uh, you know, and then I found I'm ready to build up for the breaking of bread, you know. I found, they sung a hymn and then the brother gave thanks for the bread and then one gave thanks for the wife. What have they done? We've still got an hour to go. And of course they had a meeting just like we did, wonderful meeting, everything was just the same. But I said to the elders, how come you gave thanks for the bread so quick? Oh, he said, that's what Jesus told us to do. We always do that before we get distracted. We do that first because it's of primary importance. Oh, I said, no, we think it's so important we've got to build up to it. We have it as a climax because it's so central. Here we are, breaking bread at different times and all that our justification as if we knew that Jesus said, make sure you do it fast or don't do it till later in the meeting. I mean, these are traditions. You know, my son-in-law didn't have an assembly background. Jane doesn't. It's quite a challenge having people who come from you know, he came from a Baptist church, Jane from a Salvation Army, part of the body of Christ, to come into our breaking of bread. My son-in-law, after a couple of Sundays, you know, when they broke bread and they put the cloth on like this, he said, what's the significance of the way they cover the bread? Because he thought everything seemed to have significance. Oh, I said, I'm not sure. I think it was because there was a lot of flies. <laughs> I really don't know. See, and because James used a lot of music. Well, why, why, why do you stumble over all the hymns and you can't get them started and then you sing the wrong tune when you could have an instrument? I go, well, it's, uh, uh, it's, well, it's, uh, scripture is, uh, where's that scripture about no, no music? Oh, I can, it's uh, somewhere. No, it's a tradition. No, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's lovely if, you, if we happen to have a pianist I was thinking it was so bad we have to have a penis who doesn't feel it disturbs the worship and likes to play. Um, but we have to distinguish between tradition and principle. And I, you know, I, I, I won't be asked back now I'm telling you these things, but I might as well go for broke. It's a pretty... Our assembly's a bit more kind of uh, avant-garde than you, but it's, it's a very traditional assembly, plurality of leadership and open breaking of bread, there's really no difference. But, but the elders decided there's no scriptural reason at all why the sisters shouldn't be part of the group handing out the bread. So they have to, you know, they just hand out the bread. They're not speaking. Three families left. Oh, what a 
terrible thing. The sister handed out the bed, and I'm looking for the scripture that, that, that forbids this. I, was, I mean, well, I'm not an elder there, no, I go along with what the elders do. But you think we have just said, well, the break is not too important, we'll just have it once a month or something. I mean, you can't think through this. You know, I'm not advocating, you, you do what the elders feel appropriate here, but I do want to make this point, because it is so important, the breaking of bread. The Lord's suppers, where the whole history of God's saving work in Christ is reviewed and it's responded to, and yet we get bogged down with music and who handles the bread and we had a brother who was pushing for unleavened bread and all this stuff and there's a central meeting of the church and it's such an important Thanksgiving meal uh, and, and I'm thinking this is a place where we look back to the cross the very event that made the church possible we look ahead anticipating the future of God's kingdom we look ahead to the time when Christ said he was eat it anew with the church in the kingdom uh, and it's so vital uh, it's such an opportunity to say thank you to the Lord so let's not get bogged down with stuff well, that's just messing it up I, I talked about our Easter dinner I hope Josiah's there because you see I think uh, this is a Thanksgiving dinner not an Easter dinner because that's what the Lord's Supper is and I just think, wow, a healthy family would be hurting with that empty chair. And just think, that is a place where you need to be focusing on what it's really all about. Thanksgiving and worship and praise. A lot more to be said about that, and I perhaps have to leave it, but it's a demonstration of our unity and the fellowship of all believers in the body of Christ. And if there's one place where we symbolize our unity, it's that one loaf. That's why it's called communion by some groups. And because there's one loaf, 1 Corinthians 10, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. And it's tragic when we mess that up, not through principles, but through traditions. Yes, principles are important, though. So let me balance this. Doctrine and discipline are very important in the community if it claims to be a biblical local church. If that doesn't exist, the church is really a loose collection of people with a common interest. There are lots of social groups that don't have discipline and leadership and principles. But you see, we have standards and belief and, and what makes us a local church is that, that we're an extended family, but we're led by elders, and we have spiritual fathers and teachers. I speak to a lot of Christian groups, intervarsity groups, um, Campus Crusade, or whatever the new name is, campus groups, and they meet together for worship, they have Bible study, they witness, but they're not a local church. Why are they not a local church? Because there's no leadership of God-ordained elders, so there can be no discipline, and there can be no insistence on sound doctrine. Oh, you can pull out the intervarsity statement of faith, but you see, it's a different thing in the local church. The local church in 1 Timothy 3.15 is called the house of God, and it's based on the pillar and ground of truth. And 2 Timothy 2.2 says, Timothy, take the truths you have learned and commit them to faithful men who should be able to teach others also.
You see, we live in an age when truth's relative. And the New Testament insists that those who fall into doctrinal error or serious moral failure must be accountable to the local church elders. They have the responsibility, of course, to restore and help, but if necessary, to take some kind of loving, disciplinary action in order to help and restore those who strayed away from the standards the Lord expects from his children. And that's very important. It's not a loosey-goosey, anyone-can-do-what-they-want organization. Yes, it's a family. But what should it be doing? And here's a key verse. And this is so important. Oh, finally. This is not finally in my message. Don't get excited. It's finally in Peter. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers and sisters. Be compassionate and humble. Man, if we followed that, our local church would be in great shape. If you followed that, you wouldn't be leaving because there was some upset to your tradition. We had a brother for months and months wouldn't sing a hymn if it was in another book that we introduced as well. We have the Little Black Believers. We don't have exactly the same as you, but we have this wonderful Believers hymn book that I grew up with, but we put a little praise thing in as well. Wouldn't open it to praise the Lord. And I look at this verse, he'd only sing if it was... And then eventually he went. The elders tried. What a tragedy. Now, that took a long time, but, I, but, but what we need to do, and, and you know this well, and I'm going to do it so quick, we shall be like the church in the New Testament. And you guys don't need me to tell you this, but I just want to say, it's not staying primitive or avoiding new methods. I like this cartoon. He said, our vision is to be a first century church with air conditioning, ample lighting, and state-of-the-art sound system. And I'm glad, with Dave's help, you have a state-of-the-art system so I can show, show my PowerPoint. So don't get me wrong, I'm not a, I love innovation. I mean, we've just founded a, through uh, FBH International, an internet radio that's taking the gospel to billions who can access it on their cell phones and all that stuff. So I'm all for that, but we still have to remember the marks of the New Testament churches. And I'm going to just flash through these uh, because you know them. Number one, they lived in unity as a community of believing men and women, sharing and helping each other. We talked about that. Number two, they acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord. Number three, Scripture was given free course among them. Number four, that was their authoritative guide. You always went to the Word of God. There may be differences in interpretation, but you had a foundation for where you were going. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper were observed. And this is one of the little challenges that I taught to Jane. There are different traditions. But listen, uh, this is our assembly. It's uh, more of a multicultural these days. Baptizing new Christians by immersing them in water. This is our table set up for the Lord's Supper because I had this up before. The Lord eagerly desired to eat it. Do it. Uh, and if it's a direct command from our Savior, head of the church, who said do this, you don't mess around. Coming to the Lord's Supper is simply an act of obedience to Him. And I know I don't need to push that with you people, but I do want to remind you of its importance. And the importance of worship, it was to that sinful woman at the well, the sinful outsider, that Jesus said, I'll tell you what God's looking for. This is what God wants. He wants, amazing that He sent it to that woman, 
He wants true worshippers who worship in spirit and in truth. And if your church doesn't have that, then it doesn't have what Jesus wants. Because it's um, an amazing thing. I want to tell you that attendance at the Lord's Supper has a unique input, impact on my life. Because I'm together with other people thinking about what's the most amazing fact in the universe. If people ask me what's the most amazing... I'm into some weird science professionally. But if people ask me what's the most amazing fact in the universe, it's the fact that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And it's the remembrance of that that is so central. But we have to do, as I said, and this is New Testament stuff, maintain godly order by scripturally established government of elders and deacons. We have some wonderful deacons and deaconesses in our assembly. I have to say, and again, I believe this is biblical principle, though it's not a tradition here, I know that, but our deacons group have been incredibly more effective since we had some deaconesses organizing the clean-up day and all that stuff. Now, I, I have to quit this uh, detailed stuff, but I'm not giving you a to-do list to plan the church so there's a new agenda for the next elders' meeting. You see, it's, it's, it's possible to take this list of features that I gave very quickly as marks of the New Testament church uh, as some kind of to-do list say, well, check it out. Yeah, we do it all. We're in good shape. Jesus is concerned about, in the end, is having the right heart, maintaining the right attitude, and having the relationship to him. So don't think, hey, we got it all together. I know assemblies that have got it all together, but you can't feel the love of Jesus there. Christ's lordship was for those first believers in Acts not just a verbal, formal acknowledgement, it was reflected in what they did and, and I think often, more often as I get older about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he condemned praying and fasting and religious acts that were done in the wrong spirit for the wrong reasons, he talked about heart and attitude and relationship. He said, they're going to come to me. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord, I did this, I did that, I did the other. And I'm going to say, why do you call me Lord, Lord? You didn't do what I said. And the New Testament church, hey, they added to the number every day. Those were being saved because of the way they related to each other and the Lord. So that's a sobering reminder. There's many sobering reminders. I'll skip over them. But I want to tell you that, of course, the New Testament church was a very dangerous place to be. And the church is a dangerous place to be. And I talked about this before, so I'm going to skip it. But you must realize that being in the New Testament church is a dangerous place. And in some parts of the world, life is at stake. So what, what, what can I say? I gotta finish a quarter two. This is the bottom line, and this is why I'm doing the churches in in Revelation. I'm gonna steal my own thunder and summarize uh, two forty-five minute talks in just a few minutes. The bottom line is the seven churches led us to remind us what the Lord wants us to do in the church. So we're gonna learn just very quickly, and I have them listed somewhere seven things Christ wants the local church to be. And you had some of them Sunday and you get more this Sunday night. This is only a review. From the busy church at Ephesus we learn the need to be a church who
whose members show they love the Lord. Number one, show we love the Lord. Number two, from the suffering church at Smyrna, we learn the need to be a church whose members enjoy in the confident hope of eternal blessing. No doubt about it. From the troubled church at Pergamos, we learn a church that honors, we need to be a church that honors and obeys the Word of God. From the morally compromised church of Thyatira, we learn to be a church whose members maintain the highest standards of moral purity. That's why you need church government and discipline. From the sleeping church at Sardis, we learn the need to be a church that really believes in God's power and remains alive in the Spirit. From the persevering church at Philadelphia, we learn the need to be a church that continues in total dependence on the Lord as they witness to the Gospel. And from that prosperous, lukewarm church at Laodicea, we'll talk about it Sunday night, we need to learn the need to be a church that fights to resist the pressures of materialism. And that's it, a little checklist. The Lord wants us to love Him. The Lord wants us to endure in hope. The Lord wants us to obey His Word. The Lord wants us to maintain moral purity. The Lord wants us to show life in the Spirit. The Lord wants us to trust Him as we witness and resist materialism. And when you've finished with all your arguments about church procedures and all those things, this is what Jesus wants. And you can have it right and not love Him and not look for that second coming and not be absolutely obedient to His Word and be loose and goose about, goosey about your moral life. Not showing real life in the Spirit getting out like our brother did, talking to his boss, and all in this materialistic society, resisting materialism. These are the challenges. Yes, churches can change. Our assembly is full. We've got young people, a good youth group. What happened? We prayed, and God did something. But we did some innovation, and I haven't time to go into it, but we started Christianity Explored. We, we had a community choir because we're in a poor neighborhood, and... Uh, and it was a way of getting the parents in. We, we had a block party for the neighbors. We, uh, we let the local school that didn't have a decent auditorium have the commencement in, in the assembly. Lots of stuff that made people feel comfortable with us. But none of that counted as much as this list. And I'm happy to report, I, I'm hardly there, and it's certainly nothing I can take credit for. It all happened after I resigned. <laughs> but that's what the Lord wants. I just pray that, that, and I can say this here, this church I think is going places. You have life, you have joy, you have young people, you have elders that care, you have pastoral care, you have a, a real desire to please the Lord, and that's why I can say it. You won't agree with everything I've said. What happens in my church shouldn't happen here. What happens here is between the local elders and the Lord. But I want to say you can do it, and I believe that, that, that as you check up your church, you'll be encouraged, but you'll want to do more, particularly what the Lord wants you to do. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's been a brief overview tonight. And we simply want to say to you, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to your power that is at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever.